few breaks here and there as we've been going through the book of Romans. And so this morning we're continuing on in our series in Romans, and we're in Romans 10. Last week we got to um, hear from Romans chapter 9, and Romans chapter 9 is the wonderful chapter about how God chooses to have mercy on some, how none deserve his mercy, but God elects. He chooses to have mercy on some. And this morning, we'll be reading and hearing from God's Word on chapter 10. So if you will, go ahead and stand, and we'll read God's Word together. Um, we don't do this kind of to, to just to honor ceremony, but we do this to honor God as a way to worship Him, as a way to acknowledge that, that His Word is inerrant and inspired. So if you're able to stand, stand. If not, please stay seated. But let's read God's holy, inspired Word together. Romans 10, verses 1 through 13. Brothers... My heart's desire in prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based in the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth... That Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Will be saved. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, thank you for your promise that, that everyone who calls on your name will be saved. Lord, thanks for that this promise doesn't just apply to those who have not yet placed their faith in you, but it applies to all of us this morning. That, Lord, you continue. Not only have you saved us once and for all time, but you continue to be with us. You continue to rescue us. You continue to be our God as we call on your name, Lord. God, thank you that whenever we call on your name, Lord, you answer. You are not distant. You are available. You are not hesitant to respond to us. You are not hesitant to provide your rescue. God, I pray this morning that you would enable us to put aside any any seeking to establish our own rightness before you, God. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, instead believe in you, trust in you, and experience joy in our salvation. God, for all those struggling this morning, lacking joy, God, all those who are uncertain this morning, I pray that you would bring certainty and joy through faith in you. God, I pray that you would inspire your word as I preach, that you would give us all grace to hear. Lord, we need to be able to have your grace to hear. Lord, we're tired. Lord, school started. It's been a long week. God, we need your ability to focus and to hear your word. Would you give that to us? Holy Spirit, enable us to hear from you. Would you change our hearts and minds? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever been under attack? And you had to try to justify yourself. And you had to try to justify why you took the perspective, why you had the position that you did. You ever, had, you ever been in that place before? You ever been in a place trying to explain yourself, surprisingly, when you were doing something that was right? The Apostle Paul kind of found himself in that place often in ministry, but especially as he related to the church in Rome. You see, there was the apostles in Jerusalem, the, the 12 apostles. Now one had died that replaced one of the 12 They replaced Judas with Matthias. And so the question was, what about these 12 apostles and they were reaching out to the Jews? And yet this one apostle was reaching out to the Gentiles and he seems to be having great success. Has this whole Jewish mission failed? What what, what is up with that? Why is this whole Jewish mission seem to have failed? The 12 apostles, they're kind of doing, he said, you know, Paul, we'll send you out to the Gentiles. You can have them 
you know, we don't know if that resulted very much. We know that God has brought his word to the Gentiles. But Paul will kind of focus on what God seems to be doing here with the Jews. And yet now, so many years later, perhaps 20 years later or so, it's really seemingly failed. This whole apostolic mission, Peter and James and John and Andrew and all of his disciples of Jesus, these first followers, it seems to have failed. And so Paul is confronted with an issue because it's personal for him. He's personally been accused of being part of the reason why the gospel to the Jews has failed. Because they said, Paul, you're the one causing all the division. You're the one preaching against Judaism. You're the one preaching against legalism. You're the one preaching against hoping in your own ability to come before God. So, Paul, really, you're the problem. You're the stumbling block. And Paul says, no, no, let me, let me explain to you why the Jews have not responded in the last part of chapter 9. If you look down your Bibles, we don't have this on your screen, but if you look down your Bibles, in verses 30 to 33... He begins this explanation, which leads into this verse, and he says, no, they've stumbled over something, but it's not me. They stumbled over the rock, and that rock is Jesus, and they have a choice. They can either run into him and stumble. They can try to get around him on their own way and fall, or they can stand on him. And the reason why the Jews have, have not responded is nothing to do with me. It's, it's to do all, everything to do with Jesus. And, and this morning... You're really confronted. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do? What will you do with who Jesus is? What will you do with the righteousness that God offers? Will you, will you believe it and be saved, or will you reject it and be lost? That's really what Paul is getting into, and he explains that's what happened to the Jews. And by the way, that's what happens to all mankind. This isn't just a passage that explains what happened to the Jews, why they weren't saved, but it also applies to all of humanity. Why are some people not saved Why do some people have problems? Why do other people find Christ? Why do other people, why are they saved? And so he goes on to explain that. And and he really lays out this main idea is that we can try to be right with God. We can try to be right with God. Anybody here ever try to be right with God, by the way? I've tried a lot. We can try to be right with God on our own and fail. Or we can have faith in Christ's rightness for us and be saved by God. And that's something we, really, we, we are always confronted with in the Christian walk. Not only to begin with, but as believers. We can try to be right with God on our own and fail. Or we can receive the rightness of Christ and, and experience his salvation. You know, we all struggle with this temptation to try to relate to God on the basis of our performance, on the basis of our works. You know, we're all tempted in various ways. You know, yesterday, it always happens, I don't know about you, but when, when you go to do something good, you find out that you, you end up doing just the very worst thing. You know, I'm preparing for a message yesterday, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to finish up and, and trying to, to work through things. And, you know, I end up sinning. I end up sinning big time. And, and, you know, and then you become more aware of your own failure. I become more aware of my failure and think, you know what? I don't feel like preaching. I, I'm not worthy to preach. And then I realize, wait a minute, this message really applies to me, doesn't it? You ever feel that way? You ever feel like, hey, I, I'm, I'm not a good enough Christian. I should just stop. I, you know, I, I can't do this whole thing, so I might as well just stop trying. You ever have that temptation? You know, I, I just, you know, I failed again, so I might as well give up. I don't want to be a legalist. <laughs> right? And we can all try to relate to God on the basis of our own rightness. We can also try to relate to that on the basis of our own zeal. And, and that's what Paul gets into as well. But he says in this passage later on, as we'll see, that no matter how zealous we are, no matter how right we try to be, it will never be good enough. But the only way to actually experience a right relationship with God is through belief and trust and confession, belief in him, and experience that kind of salvation. He says there's only two options for everybody because the Jews picked the first way they haven't been saved. And there's really only two options. In verses uh, 1 through 5, we're going to see the first option here. So there's really only two major points out of that main point. There's two two major points out of that main point. And the first one is that we're lost. We are lost when we try to be right with God on our own. Or maybe said another way, we're lost when we try to find the rightness of God on our own. And that's verses 6 through 13. And I remember the story of Charlie Brown. Anybody here ever, it's an old comic book, and I think only people over 40 have ever read Peanuts. Anybody, anybody under 40 ever read Peanuts? It's this comic strip with this pathetic character named Charlie Brown who we can all empathize with because we all see a little bit of ourselves in Charlie Brown, at least I do. And he stands on the pitcher's mound, and he's, he's standing there, and it's after they've lost their like 90th consecutive game, 
and he's standing there and he goes, how can we, how can we lose so badly when we're so sincere? How can we lose so badly when we're so sincere? You know, how, how can we lose so badly when we're really trying? We're trying so hard and we mean really well. How can we lose so badly? And that's really a question that humanity is always confronted with. I was reading about the story of Duke University. They had some elevator maintenance that needed to be done. And so their elevator mechanics, they went and worked on these elevators. And they realized they had to replace all the hydraulic fuel. I know I'm getting a little boring here, but there's fuel, hydraulic fuel, and the elevators. They had to replace it all. And so they took all the hydraulic fuel out. And they realized that they didn't have any containers to store it in. And Duke Labs was right next door. And so they used the Duke Labs detergent um, disinfectant containers, and they filled all the hydraulic fuel up in these empty disinfectant containers, screwed the cast back on, set them out in the parking lot, meaning to come back later after they've been done. The problem is is that um, uh, a delivery service was also coming to pick up some disinfectant materials, and they came to the parking lot, saw these disinfectant materials in these jugs out there, and so they picked them up, and they distributed them to hospitals all all around the East Coast. And so they used these disinfectant materials, which really were not disinfectant materials, but hydraulic fluid. And they used them in 3,800 surgeries. Um, <laughs> that was my response too. Oh no, 3,800 surgeries. Now I don't know what the effect of that was, but, um, and I, I think there might have been a little bit of a cover-up or a um, oiling over of things. But um, anyway, they, that was really bad. And, and <laughs> so they... They found out, they, they, were, they were realizing that, hey, you know what, these, these surgical instruments all seem to be a little slicker after we apply this disinfectant. And they had like a brown color to them. They couldn't figure out why. And finally they discovered, one person, one nurse discovered that it, this, this is, cannot be the disinfectant because it's not normally this slippery. And, and so they discovered that they, they were all very sincerely using what they thought was disinfectant. They were sincerely using it. They were very earnest in their application of it, but it was applying the wrong thing. And it was doing no good whatsoever. And that's what it's like when we try to apply our own, when we try to apply righteousness, but instead of being the righteousness of God, we're applying our own righteousness. And we think that that's going to make us clean, that's going to make us right before God. And we're gravely mistaken. You can be sincere in pursuing God and look down at verse 2. Paul is saying that really. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's a zeal without knowledge. Now that zeal, um, it, you can also translate that word as kind of a, a zealous sincerity or this sincere pursuit, this earnest pursuit. They're earnestly pursuing God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. Now what does he mean? After all, didn't the Jews have the Bible? Didn't they have the Old Testament? Didn't they have the law, the prophets, the covenants? Didn't they have the whole Old Testament? How can it be without knowledge? Well, well, they needed a righteousness. They just didn't, it wasn't the righteousness that they thought. It was a knowledge that was not in accordance with the knowledge that God had provided. You see, God, Paul is saying, and God says really, that the relationship with him has always been about righteousness, but it's never been about our own righteousness. The law actually was meant to show us our need for God's righteousness, a righteousness apart from ourselves, and to show us our need for faith in him. And yet they were trusting in the wrong thing. And he says, I can, I can bear witness. And how, how, what does Paul mean, I, I can bear witness? Remember who Paul the Apostle was. He was a Jew of Jews. He was the first of all Jews, really. He was well-trained. He was zealous himself. And it says, in regards to God and the the purity of the law, he was very zealous. And so here he says, I understand. I can bear testimony that I can be zealous. Humans can be zealous. The Jews were zealous. I can be zealous. I was zealous for what I thought was God, and I was totally wrong. Because it wasn't in accordance with the knowledge that God had revealed. And you know, some people misplace a zeal for God with trusting in God and a right relationship with God. Not according to knowledge of of God. Knowledge and a right relationship with God. Now we can see that today too. Before you think this doesn't apply to you, um, some people try different kinds of religions. Some people try to get to God through Mormonism, but their zeal is not according to a true knowledge of God. Some people try to get to God through the zeal for Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and, and their knowledge is not according to true knowledge of God, and 
Muslims have a misplaced zeal for God that's ultimately about works, but not according to the knowledge that God has revealed himself. There's one way to him through the righteousness of Christ. But it doesn't just end with there. You know, people who trust in science are, are trusting zealously in something to save them that, that never will because it's not in accordance with knowledge of who God is in a right relationship with him. But it doesn't stop there. It applies to people in the church, too. You can be zealous for the church. You can be zealous for the Bible. You can be zealous for God. And it may or may not be in, in, in accordance with knowledge of God, right relationship with God by righteousness. Now, what do I mean by that? I think that many people, not just Jews then, but today in the church, this applies as well. Many people can be zealous for maybe the right polity, right? The right way of church government. And maybe that makes you really bored. Um, or maybe people can be zealous for the right way of singing. You know, if they just sing this way or sing these songs or sing these songs in this way, or they sing this style of music, or maybe are you really zealous for only organ music, or you're zealous only for drums or only for whatever, and you think that's a real godly way to do things. Or I'm, I'm really zealous for dressing the white right way and appearing the right way. And, and that's a godly way. And, and that's not in accordance with the knowledge of who God truly is. Religious people who call themselves Christians can know a lot about God. But if their zeal for God's based on outward appearances and outward behavior or church attendance or ritual, all that zeal may not be according to a knowledge of who God is and the righteousness he's provided and that could lead to being lost. And so it applies to us as well. And Paul outlines really two ways of righteousness. So there's a way of righteousness by faith that starts to secure righteousness through Christ. And there's a way that tries to secure righteousness through the law. And then look down at verse 3. He talks about how the Jews, he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. Why didn't they find God? Why? Because it is zeal that was not according to knowledge. Why? Because they were ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. What's he talking about? He said, the righteousness that's apart from works. The righteousness that comes from God and says, seeking to establish on their own. What is the symptom of the fact that you have zeal not according to knowledge, that you have rejected God, that you might be lost? And one of those symptoms of the fact is that you try to establish, you seek to establish on your own your own righteousness, and then secondly, you don't submit to God's righteousness. You know, imagine that a man goes to the doctor and he gets an x-ray. Let's call him his name Bill. Bill goes to the doctor, he gets x-rays, and he finds out he has this mass of tumors all throughout his spinal column and, and that it's going to take major surgery to remove these tumors and that he might live. And then he asks the doctor, he says, well, I don't have insurance, so you know, how much is that going to cost? And the doctor says, you know, that's probably going to be between your surgery and a follow-up and everything else. That's got like $300,000, which is not really outlandish given the, the magnitude of what he needed to have done. But he says, you know, I don't have that kind of money. And, and the doctor says, well, you know, the only option is surgery. He says, well, aren't there any other options? The doctor says no, and so Bill goes back home, and he takes the x-ray, and he, he scans it into his computer, and he uploads it, and he gets uh, Photoshop, and he edits the x-ray, and he tries to make it look like he doesn't have cancer at all, and then he prints it back out, and he takes it to the doctor, and he says, Doc, look, I'm okay. It's kind of an absurd situation. That You, you see, we... There's no way for us to be right enough on our own. We need a dramatic removal of all our unrightness, and we need a dramatic in, infusion of Christ's righteousness in order to be right before God. And we can try to pretend like we're good enough, but we're, we're never going to be good enough on our own. We can't establish our own righteousness. And we must submit to his diagnosis that we need God's righteousness. He says any, any grounds or for righteousness or confidence before God by our own means is to refuse to submit to God. That's what he means. Look, look in verse 3. He says, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. If you are trying to earn favor before God or keep favor before God in any way, what, is that, what does that mean you're doing? It means you are not submitting to God's righteousness. It's no minor thing. It's no minor thing. It's pride. And ultimately, if you hope in your own, establishing your own righteousness, Paul's saying that's what resulted in the Jews being cut off from God. 
They were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And that's kind of a temptation for all of us, right? We, we want to be good enough on our own. We want to be good enough. We want to be smart enough. We want to be strong enough. We want to, we want to, we want to be right enough on our own. And we want to have some confidence in our own abilities. And he says, no, if you're seeking to do that, you're not submitting to God's righteousness. And ultimately, that's what led to the Jews being cut off. But he says, God provides a righteousness outside of our own efforts. And he says, look down in verse 4, he says, For Christ is the end, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And what he's saying is that Christ is the end of the law it kind of has a double meaning of sorts. It means if you, if you think about the illustration of running a race and there is the finish line. And you're running towards the finish line. The finish line is the end of the race, but it's also the fulfillment of the race. It's the completion of the race. It means the race has been run. You've accomplished the race. It also means the race is over. You don't need to race anymore. And so it's kind of what we see here. He's the end of the law in the sense that he completed. He fulfilled the law in every way. He completed all the requirements of the law. But it also means that the whole very law was leading up to that final point, which is Christ, the end, the fulfillment of the law. Do you get that? So he's both, he's completed all the requirements of the law, and he's also the whole thing that the very law was leading to, to the end of the law, was Christ pointing to him so that everybody who believes might receive his righteousness. The law still functions, but it functions to point us to Christ, to the end. And then he explains that Christ in the law, he says, for Moses writes, he explains how Christ in the law, he says, for Moses writes, look down at verse 5, for Moses writes, about the righteousness as based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. If, if somebody were to try to be righteous based on the law, what he's saying is the person who does those commandments has to actually live by those commandments. It, it's a little hard to at first get what he's saying here. How is he using what will live by the law as proof for why there's only righteousness in Christ? What he says, you know what? If you're going to try to keep the commandments of Christ, of God, then you're going to have to live you're going to have to live by that commandments, which means that if you break those commandments in any way, you're going to have to live with the results. You're going to have to live with the consequences. And the problem is, apart from Christ, no one has ever kept the law perfectly. If you try to become righteous through the commandments, then you must live according to the rules of the commandments. And the rules of the commandments say that anybody who breaks the commandments must die. It's deserving of death. If you, live, if you try to keep the commandments, you have to live by them. You, have to, you are stuck with them. So if you're trying to establish your own righteousness, and that's what the problem with the Jews, he said they rejected Christ because they're trying to establish their own righteousness, and the problem is they end up dying because of that. If you try to live by the commandments and fail in any in one of them, you fail completely and deserve all the punishment of the commandments. And if one can claim to be blameless in relation to the law in man's eyes, nobody could be blameless and perfect in, in all of the desires and intents of the heart. You know, Paul says, in respect to the law, I was blameless, but not really. In man's eyes, he was blameless. Externally, he kept the law. But he wasn't trying to please God from his heart. The first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, he broke. As all of us have. But then he tells us there's, there's a problem. There's two times of types of righteousness. The types of righteousness that the Jews trusted in and resulted in them being lost. Now, why is it that Gentiles were saved? How is it that anybody can be saved? He explains it. He says we're saved when we lose ourselves and find Christ's righteousness. It's the second major point that we will get to in verses 6 through 13. We're saved when we lose ourselves and find Christ's righteousness. Paul here in verse 6, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 9 and then chapter 30, but what in the world is he saying? Listen, look in verse 6 and 7. It's a little confusing at first. He says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Don't say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, what is he talking about? What's he talking about? Well, he's quoting these two Old Testament passages, and he's trying to show us that that faith is opposed to any self-attainment. He says that, you know, faith is not about trying to work your way up. You know what? I'm going to be so good and so righteous that I'm going to go up to heaven, and I'm going to get Jesus to come down here by my merit. He said that's the opposite of faith. He says, or I'm going to be so low that I'm going to humble myself so low, and I'm going to be a servant of all, and I'm going to be so low that I'm going to go down into the very depths as if I could do enough to raise Christ up from the dead. And he says that 
receiving the righteousness of faith admits that we, we aren't the ones who can ascend into heaven to bring Jesus down. He didn't come down because we worked so hard to reach up to him. And he wasn't raised from the dead because we worked so hard to be so low. Receiving Christ based on faith as opposed to any, any heart and motives that would try to claim credit or merit for Jesus coming down or for raising him from the dead. To receive the righteousness of God, we're expected to trust in the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus, not to trust in our ability to, to make Jesus come down to us and to make Jesus rise from the dead. Instead, it puts hope in the fact that the word is no further from us. So righteousness is not so distant from us that we have to reach up to heaven to get it or that we have to be so low to, to get it to raise Jesus from the dead on our own. Uh, righteousness is not that difficult, he says. It's, it's not, you don't have to do all these works either to attain or to lower yourself. To, you know, some people say, well, I just haven't ridden myself of my desires enough. I haven't um, committed enough or I haven't consecrated myself enough, gotten low enough. I, I haven't done enough good things, so, so I, I really can't receive the righteousness of God until I do one of those things. And we can kind of feel that way. And he says, no, it's nearer to you than you think. It's just, it's in your mouth. Meaning that, look in, in verse 8, he says, the word is near to you. It's not, you don't have to do all this effort. You don't have to work hard. This word of righteousness is near to you. He said, it's in your mouth and in your heart. That's the word of faith that we proclaim. And he explains what he means. He says, because if you confess with your mouth, you don't have to do a lot of works. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's not these huge works that you do. It just requires a life that says, yes, I believe that I need a righteousness apart from my, my own self, that I can't do this on my own. God, that I'm never going to be good enough on my own, that I bring nothing to the table, that I, I don't have any merit of my own, and, and, and I believe, Jesus, I need your righteousness, and I need you to take care of all of my sin because I've failed in so many ways to honor you, God. And God, I confess that I want you to be Lord over me. And so confession and really the overflow of belief. Is, you can't separate confession and belief. They're not two distinct things. Belief without confession is not really faith. And confession without belief is hypocrisy. And so he's saying together this, this belief and confession, it's, it's, it's one thing. It's not some magical words or incantation. There's no such thing as the sinner's prayer. I know this can be shocking to you. Now, you can pray as a sinner that God would save you and put your faith and trust in him, and he does save you. But it's got nothing to do with any incantation or special prayer. The only thing special is that you're putting your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that you believe that he's taken the penalty and the punishment for all of your sins, and you're trusting in that, and you're confessing that to God. You're confessing your need for him, that you want to receive the righteousness that only comes from him, and that you want him to be your master, to be your Lord. You want to live for him because you want him to rule and reign over you. Now, there's nothing magical about words, but, but he is saying this confession and belief is all it takes. It just takes a heart trusting in his righteousness and, and confessing or professing that. And he says if we hold fast to this good confession, if we're trusting in the fact that he, he died for our sakes and was raised again, then we can be sure we'll be saved. There's a guy named Charles Cranfield I don't think I have this for you on your overheads, but if you listen, I'll, I'll put it up on the blog afterwards or on the, on the website. It says, For Paul, the confession that Jesus is Lord meant the acknowledgement that Jesus shares the name and nature, the holiness, the authority, the power and majesty, the eternity of the one and only true God. Do you believe that way? Do you place your faith in the fact that that Jesus has the very name and nature, the holiness, the authority, the power, the majesty, the eternity of God. And do you believe in him? And do you want him to rule your life? And do you, do, you, do you know that you need his righteousness? And is that what you're trusting in? So confessing is, is to confess that we're submitted to Jesus, that we belong to him. Same thing we saw last week in baptism. For those of you who are here, it's it's a public profession of, of what has already transpired, of somebody's already believed and confessed. And so baptism is really this, this pledge of a good confession, as, as 1 Peter 3.21 puts it, the pledge of a good conscience before God. Can, can you pledge a good conscience before God, not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of Christ's works? That's, that's the only way we can pledge a good confession. 
Now look down at verse 10. He explains what we experience in reality. Look in verse 10. It says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and the mouth one confesses and is saved. He's not using two different ways of saying the same thing. He says, With the heart one believes and is justified, and the mouth one confesses and is saved. So when we believe and confess, when, when our confession and our belief that cannot be separated are placed in Jesus Christ, it results in our justification and our salvation. That's what he's saying. Saving faith is a belief that confesses that we belong to Jesus, that he's in charge of us, and that we will submit to him. Now look at verse 11. Uh, Paul's quoting here from Isaiah 28. Paul's doing a lot of quoting from the Old Testament because he's trying to show that this is nothing new. God has always been about this. It's always been about a righteousness that's come apart from the law. And so now he quotes from Isaiah 28, 6 in chapter, in verse 11. If you look down your Bibles, read it together with me. It says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is not something new. It's always been about belief in God is what is required for the removal of our shame. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of things to be ashamed about. Anybody hear everything that you're ashamed about? You don't have to tell what it is. I'm not going to ask you to say what it is or anything like that. But raise your hand. Anything, anybody here have anything to be ashamed about at all in their past at all in life? I, I can think of a lot. I mean, I'm ashamed of stuff, just normal stuff, much less the stuff I don't want anybody else to know about because everybody's got some of those things that you're like, I'm just, I just was so... I was so much worse than anybody knows that I don't want anybody to know about that. Whether it's the way you think. You don't want, no, you want somebody to get into your thoughts because you're like, I'm ashamed I was thinking that way. Or I'm ashamed I did those things. Or I'm ashamed I said those things. And I, don't want, I don't want everyone to bring those up again. And, and I love the, the fuller quote of Isaiah 28, 16. You see the Jews that were reading this in Rome, the, the Christians in Rome, they would have been very familiar with their Bibles. I don't do that, say to shame you, but they would have been very familiar with their Bibles. So I'm, I'm gonna show you from Isaiah 28, 16, that the passage he's quoting, the little fuller passage, and it helps us a little bit because it gives us some context here. And he says, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion. Now he's talking about, Paul's using this to reference Jesus. I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed or as Paul changes the wording there, will not be put to shame. The one who trusts in our cornerstone, the foundation, the precious cornerstone, the sure foundation the tested stone of Jesus' righteousness. He'll never be dismayed, never be put to shame. And why is that significant that Paul reminds us of the fact that everybody who believes in him will not be put to shame? Why is that significant? Well, it's because ultimately, every human who has not put their faith and trust in the righteousness of God through Christ will one day be completely ashamed. Everyone, without exception. You see, the reverse is true. Everyone who does not believe in him will be put to shame. That's why it's significant. And I think as, as believers, we need to remind ourselves of that truth from time to time. In the day of judgment, if we came before God on our own merit, we would stand ashamed before God, ashamed for every act of disobedience, ashamed for every ungodly thought, ashamed for every ungodly word. A shame for every time we didn't love God with our heart, our mind, and soul. Every time we didn't love our neighbor like ourselves, we would be ashamed. A shame for every failure to give thanks to God or to acknowledge God. A shame for not responding to God's conviction and call. That's the kind of shame that's going to be experienced by everyone who does not believe. Shame for hardening our hearts to God. Shame for not responding to his free gift of grace through the good news of Jesus. You see, ever since Adam and Eve, shame's been a big problem for mankind. What was the very first thing? Anybody here remember? What was the very first thing that they did after they sinned when God came looking for them? What did they do? Anybody know? Shout it out. They hid. They, covered, they tried to cover themselves, right? And they did it pretty pathetically. What did they cover themselves with? Leaves. I don't, I don't know if you ever try to make like a cloak out of leaves. It's not so efficient. Um, the wind blows, right? I won't say anything else. Um, so it's not very effective. It's paltry. You know, leaves are kind of brittle. They break. They tear. They don't last very long. It's a, it's a temporary covering. 
But that's the very first thing that humanity, that we try to do. Because why? Because we are aware we have a problem of shame. Right? Everybody hears that problem. What will you do with it, though? What do you do with it? What do you do when you are tempted to experience shame because of your behavior, your actions, your thoughts, your words? What will you do with shame? What does is, what is humanity do with shame? He says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Isn't that good news? We no longer have to be ashamed. You know, what was the very first thing that God ended up doing for them after they tried to cover themselves? Anybody remember what, what, what did God do? Anybody? You shout it out. He killed an animal and took the skin and he covered them. And that was really pointing forward. That was the very beginning of the gospel saying, you can't cover yourself. You need me to do it. You can't believe in your own ability to cover yourself. You need me to do something for you. You need me to cover your shame. Ultimately, now animal skins and the blood of bulls and goats. Oh, there's the, the rest of the sacrificial system. They can't cover. Ultimately, there needs to be a sacrifice. There needs to be a covering. The ultimate covering is him. And if you believe in him, you won't be put to shame. Why? Because he covers you. And what does it say in the, in the end in Revelation? It says, he clothes us with his robes of white, his, his robes of righteousness. Now, it doesn't mean physically we're wearing clothes. I don't, I don't know if we're wearing clothes in heaven or not. I know that might wig you out. I want you to think a lot about that. But, but we will be so clothed with his righteousness that we will have his robes of righteousness on. It speaks of us that way. But you know what? He already sees us that way now. For all those who believe in him, he al- we can already be sure we will not be put to shame because we're already covered and clothed in his righteousness. You're already covered over with his, with his righteousness. He has already sacrificed once and for all. He has already clothed you. He has already given you his righteousness if you placed your faith. If you believe in him, that's why we will not be put to shame. Now maybe some of you here, you're wallowing under the, uh, this, this, this mire of shame. If, and if you've not believed in Jesus yet, you've not placed your faith in him, maybe you have a zeal for God, but you've not really placed your faith in Christ. Or, or maybe you've grew up in the church and you have a zeal for all the things of God, but you've not really put your faith in a relationship with him. Or maybe you've, you've been trying to be a good person on your own and, and you think, yeah, I'm trying really hard, and that's what you're putting your faith in. Then, then you, have, you have an opportunity here. It says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You can come out of your pit. You can confess your need for him, confess your sins in faith, believe in him, and receive his righteousness by faith. And you can be free from shame if you believe in him. Everyone. For others, you might be struggling here under the burden of shame. Maybe you are a believer in Jesus. You place your faith in him, but you struggle under shame by either what things have been done to you or what things you've been done. You've been done. You've done. <laughs> And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you need to remind yourself that you, 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 might be, you might be trusting in your ability to establish or keep or maintain your own righteousness before God, and that is what's resulting in those, that experience of shame. It could be a symptom. It could be a symptom you're trying to establish your own righteousness before God or keep it. And if so, Confess that as pride, even though it's a depressing sort of pride. You know, pride can be very depressing, by the way. Pride that says, you know, I can never be good enough, and so therefore I, knew I will never be good enough. What is that saying? It's saying that your hope is ultimately in yourself and your own ability to cover yourself, to be good enough, to attain, to reach up, to bring Christ down, to be so low that you might bring Christ up. If I only feel bad enough, maybe Christ will love me. And so remind yourself the fact that Scripture says there's no grounds for righteousness in ourselves and we can't keep ourselves righteous before God. I went through a period of my life where um, I felt like I couldn't stop sinning. I wasn't doing anything major. I wasn't doing anything big. I just, every time I interacted with people, I felt felt like I was wanting their approval or I felt like I was trying to impress people or I would say something stupid or I'd be sinful or proud or whatever and I thought, I just can't stop it. And so I dug in. I tried to have more times with God and longer times with God and I tried to consecrate myself even more and dedicate myself even more and all it got, all resulted in was me feeling like, you know, I don't even know if I'm a believer or not. Because I can't stop sinning. 
And the problem is I was trusting in my own ability to cover my shame or to be good enough. And God says, no, believe in Him and you won't be put to shame. Strive to enter His righteousness alone. That's what Hebrews is talking about when it says that we strive to enter into a Sabbath rest, resting from our own works and trusting in His work. And the fact that He has now rested from His works and now we rest in His finished work. And we have to submit to that humbling truth. Unlike the Jews who did not submit to the righteousness of God, if you are struggling with feeling that way, feeling unrighteous, now what I would encourage you to do is say, God, help me submit to your righteousness and receive your righteousness and know that you have made me righteous. Help me, help me subject and submit myself to that and receive that and own that truth and believe that I won't be put to shame. And if so, there's great cause for rejoicing. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Isn't that good news? I mean, come on. Isn't that good news? Everybody who believes in him won't be put to shame. You can clap. That's okay. People embarrassed. I'm, I'm clapping. Oh, no, I feel embarrassed. It's okay. Everybody who believes in him won't be put to shame. Whoever was clapping, I wasn't looking. It's okay. I'm going to come call you out. won't put you to shame. Everybody who believes in him won't be put to shame. That's great news. You know, because if you are disobedient and you feel like I'm too disobedient, I'm too unlovely, I'm too dumb, I'm too fickle, I'm too proud, I'm too whatever, he has a good news for you. Everybody who believes in him won't be put to shame. Now look in in verse 12. Here's here's some more good news. It says, for there's no distinction between Jews and Greeks. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. There's two types of righteousness. There's types of righteousness that we try to be righteous on and seek to establish our own righteousness. We, we try to have enough zeal for God so maybe God will accept us. That ends up being lost. But the type of righteousness that says, I have none of myself, and instead I'm going to submit to his righteousness, trust in him, believing that it doesn't matter my background or who I am or where I've come from. God doesn't distinguish between that. What, what, what's important to God is that all who call on him will receive his riches. Do you want all of God's riches? And I don't mean, I'm not talking about money. This is not a, a health and wealth, prosperity gospel kind of nonsense, which is no gospel at all. This is the true riches of God, the riches of being forgiven, of receiving his righteousness, the riches of receiving eternal life. I, I don't know about you, but um, I, I would trade everything all the, the, the lottery that was won this past week, the $750 million Powerball lottery that was won this past week, I would trade all that for eternal life, wouldn't you? Which one is more rich? And Paul's saying there's no distinction. It doesn't matter your background. The Jews aren't more deserving somehow. Don't, don't get the wrong idea. They aren't more deserving. And Gentiles aren't more undeserving. You know, people who come from a religious background today are not any better who, than people who come from the worst background you can imagine. And if you come from the worst background that you can imagine, you're not any worse than the person who comes from the best background you can imagine. There's no distinction. There's no distinction, is what he says. Even the Jews, the apparently sanctified, they're not distinct from the unsanctified when it comes to the ability to receive the rightness of God and have their shame taken away. And so whether you today are aware of all of your sins, as, well, if, if that's possible, or whether you are clueless about the depths of your depravity because you think you've never done what you consider detestable, you equally deserve shame, but you equally, equally can have your shame removed. There's no distinction. Look at verse 13. Paul makes another subtle point. Not only is there no distinction in merit between the law, the Jew, and the Gentile, Religious and irreligious, this, there's a free offer of salvation. And he says something that's a little bit shocking. He says it's available to everybody. It's available to everybody. He clarifies a little bit. It's not, it's not that there's no distinction between Jew and, Gentile, Jew and Gentile. We can all receive the righteousness of God. We all can have our shame done away with. No, it's, it's available to everyone. Because some might have been reading in Paul's passage here in, in Romans chapter 9. Which, by the way, a lot of people pull Romans 9 and 10 and 11 way out of context to prove their own little pet doctrines. And, and the Bible just has nothing to do with that. Because actually the Bible, Paul wasn't writing Romans 9 to give his great treaties on election. And he wasn't writing on God's sovereignty. And he wasn't writing Romans 10 to give his great treaties on man's responsibility. He was saying, here's why the Jews have not believed. And, and here's, here's why. It's because God must choose you and you must um, he must extend mercy to you, and if he does not, you will not respond to him. But at the same time, you, everybody who does 
hear this message can respond. Everybody who hears can believe. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You think, well, how can that that be true? You know, sometimes there are things that that are difficult for us to understand, like the doctrine of the Trinity. We can't understand how can God be three and yet be one. And I've never heard the greatest explanation that really fully reconciles that with anyone. And there's some extent it blows your mind. And, and, and I think this is Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. Those are passages that will blow our mind. God is ultimately completely sovereign. He must elect. He must choose. It's always been that way. He must call. He must extend mercy to all those who do not deserve mercy. And by the way, that's everyone does not deserve mercy. And so for those of us who've received mercy, we say, oh God, thank you. You've given us mercy. At the same time, he says, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. Everyone, the Lord, what's he saying? Everyone. The Lord's available to save everyone who calls on his name. If you want to call on God's name this morning, you, you can, you will be saved. You don't have to wonder, am I called? Am I not called? Am I elect? Am I not elect? That's nonsense. Here's the scripture you need to apply to yourself. If you have a desire to respond, to receive a righteousness outside of yourself, to have your shame covered, if you desire to call, God, I need you to save me, you will be saved. That's what he says. There's no excuse. You know, some people go straight either way, and they use this doctrine of God's sovereignty to say, well, then we don't need to preach the gospel. We're going to get to that next week, the latter half of chapter 10. That's baloney. Or you can say, you know what? I'm not really sure. I'm an unbeliever here, but I'm not reserved God's elected me, so I'm going to stay there until I'm sure. Well, that's baloney too. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's meant to be the most reassuring truth that if you believe, you can be certain, looking back, that God has chosen you in his mercy to be his child. I think if you use the illustration before that C.S. Lewis did, he said, you know, the gates of heaven on the outside, it says, enter all you who will. But once you come into the gate, you look back, and it says, chosen since the beginning of time. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Scripture doesn't try to explain away this apparent paradox. We know both are true. We can't see fully how. It doesn't minimize the fact that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's not get the wrong order. We realize that God must act. And so at the same time, that inspires us to do something that Paul did at the beginning of this, of this verse, of chapter, in, in verse 1. He says, I pray that they might be saved. God's sovereignty is not meant for us to take a back seat. It's actually meant for us to continue to pray. At the beginning of chapter 9, he says, I, I, I want them, I desire for them to be saved, but God must save them. At the same time, now he gets to the beginning of chapter 10. And by the way, there's no chapter breaks. This is one continuous flow of thought when he wrote the letter. He says, and I pray because of God's sovereignty, because he must work, but because he can work and he can break through any hard heart, I'm going to pray that he does. And then anybody who calls on him will be saved. And then we can be assured that he is not far from us. We don't have to reach up into heaven to try to secure him to come down to us, to earn favor. We don't have to be so low or lower ourselves so much that as if we could uh, make him raise from the dead. He's nearer to us than we think. Believer and unbeliever, trusting in his righteousness, resting in his righteousness, trusting and resting in the fact that Oh, if we call on his name, we won't be put to shame. We believe in him, we'll be saved. Let's revel in the fact that we won't be put to shame, that we're no longer naked. If you're a believer, hear the good news again. You, you, you need to realize that you're, you're covered in the righteousness of Christ. Stop trying to keep your salvation. Stop wallowing in doubt and unbelief. Stop thinking that you're not good enough because you aren't, instead realize that Christ was better than you could ever be. And Christ was completely acceptable before God. Revel in that fact. Rejoice in that fact. You're so often as believers, we can kind of spin our wheels, being stuck in this place where we always feel bad because we sin, we feel bad, we sin, we feel bad, we sin, we feel bad. Instead, God says, you know, no, stop. I want you to have confidence and joy in me Not that you're just like, I didn't really sin. But you say, no, I sinned. But you know what? I have his righteousness and that's what gives me hope. That he'll never put me to shame. That I believe in him. And and that's that's so hard because we want to have some merit. We want to take confidence in ourselves. 
But let's revel in the fact that we've been completely covered over, clothed with the right thoughts, right motives, right acts of Christ. And then let's also, if you're, if you're not a believer, freely call on his name. Because if you call on his name and say, Jesus, would you save me? Would you rescue me from myself? God, I confess that I need you, that I repent of my sins, and I, I've been going my own way, and, and Lord, I, I can't be right with you on my own, but God, would you give me your rightness of Christ and all of his right acts, and would you, Lord, thank you that you've taken my sins, you put them on Jesus and punished him on the cross. God, I want to trust in that. I want to live that out, and Lord, help me to profess that. I don't have to write, write that down. It's not, there's nothing magical about that, but that's, that's the heart behind it, and that's the confession that we must make. And here's the thing. In, in Romans 9, 30, 33, he says, the reason the Jews failed is because they, they encountered this rock in their path, and they were confronted with it, and instead of responding rightly to the rock, they stumbled over it, or they tried to get around it. But God says, no, I want you to stand on the rock. And that's this morning where we need to be and where I want to close. Where's your hope? Where's your confidence? Are you standing on the rock, the sure foundation that's Christ? Or are you standing on something else? And whatever you're standing on, if anything else, stand afresh on Christ. Let's pray and I have the band go ahead and come up and we'll sing a song. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you would encourage us Lord, I pray for those struggling with shame that you would enable all of us, all of them, to trust in you for your righteousness, that we're no longer ashamed because you bore our shame. And God, I pray for all of us, we would stand in confidence on you, on Christ, the solid rock. I pray that we would find our hope in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness that we would not trust in in anything else but in you alone. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.